Hi, this is Malia Warner, and welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. On today's episode, I am talking about South Africa. I'm taking a break from podcasting chapters of Lies of the Magpie. I know I'm so sorry, everyone who's waiting for the next chapter, but I just had the experience of a lifetime and I have a podcast, so of course I have to talk about it. A few weeks ago, I left my Utah County monochromatic life, something I rarely do, even though I love diversity. I don't know why we call traveling a vacation, because flying for hours in a cramped space between two strangers, we had a little mix-up with our seats, is not a vacation. It is an education in humanity. And that's why I have to podcast today, because I feel a little more human, or at least a little more connected to humanity. I experienced all the things that make us different, but that make us the same. Politics, race, religion, culture, food, travel, animals, vegetation, the whole gamut. In short, I have learned a thing or two, maybe even a power principle or two. Welcome to Power Principles, episode 25, Things I Learned Traveling to South Africa. Hi friends, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. First, let me say that in this episode, I am intentionally skipping over the story of seeing my son for the first time in two years, which was amazing and emotional and entirely worth the 30 hours of flying. The story is probably too mushy, and you probably don't want to hear about all of that mothering gushiness, but he is the reason. He is the reason that I got on the plane and that I flew for 30 hours, that we dared at all travel across South Africa. He drove us on the wrong side of the road through traffic that I have never experienced before and don't really care to experience again anytime in the near future. He is the reason we were able to meet people, to enter homes, and to really dive into the culture of an amazing country, an amazing two countries, actually. I feel like the theme of this collection of traveling stories really fit under two ideas, the concept of shoes and home, our human instinct to search for home. So our first power principle today is All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, which is the title of one of Maya Angelou's autobiographical narratives. And I had a couple of experiences with shoes on this trip, and I tell you, shoes are really representative of our humanity. So I'm going to start today with where our travel started on an airplane. So because of the big price of the airline tickets, we chose to travel a less expensive but lengthier route, which took us from New York to Dubai, which is in the United Arab Emirates, and then from Dubai into Johannesburg, South Africa, and then another little flight from Johannesburg to Durban, South Africa. So it was kind of a big deal for me to travel to Dubai. I have to confess truthfully that I have inner fears of the Middle East, similar to my fears of the deep ocean. I'm afraid of scuba diving because in the ocean, I can't tell what is a benign saltwater plant and what is a dangerous living sea creature posing as a benign saltwater plant that will jump out and sink its poisonous barbs into my wrist while I'm trying to take its picture. Like the ocean, my fears of the Middle East come from its being unknown to me. 
My images of the Middle East are of charmed cobra snakes popping up out of baskets or shish kebab mills consisting of skewered tarantulas and large crickets interspersed with chunks of pig brain and dog eyeballs. When I think of the Middle East, I picture hooded men with machetes prepped to chop my right hand off if I knock over the fruit tower in the open market. I imagine poisoned darts and ancient golden relics bewitched with the curse of yummy majabin. Obviously, I've acquired my accurate stereotypes of the Middle East from my love of the first three Indiana Jones movies. So it's probably a good thing that I was merely passing through the Middle East on my way to South Africa and that my first encounter with it was a gentle four-hour layover in the Dubai airport, which, can I just say, amazing restrooms. In the JFK airport in New York City, we're waiting to board the plane, and I'm looking at all of the passengers around me who are traveling to Dubai. I passed a lot of time waiting in airport lines by people watching. I was fascinated by clothing, by what people were wearing, which is unusual for me because I can have hour-long face-to-face conversations with people and couldn't tell you five minutes later what clothing they had on. I usually don't pay that much attention. But I was intrigued by the spectrum of wardrobe options. I was kind of experiencing my own little New York to Dubai airport fashion show especially for the Arab men and women who I don't encounter that often. There was everything from full hijabs and niqabs to men in kadoras or dashadas. And what I wanted most to know was how those men traveled through airports and kept those white suits so sparkling clean. Like, seriously, what laundry detergent do they use? There were people in what I would call casual Arabic wear, capris with tunics, summer dresses with distinct geometric designs embroidered or painted on the fabric or the bejeweled v-neck patterns around the collar and a lot of beautiful headscarves and the airport attendant calls us up according to our boarding zones and has us line up and out of the corner of my eye i'm watching this indian woman next to me and i'm admiring the pattern on her traditional dress and scarf and i look down and i'm not kidding We are both wearing the exact same shoes. She has the exact blue slip-on loafers that I purchased at Costco last year for the very reason that they are perfect for traveling. She is wearing them with her traditional Arabic dress and headscarf, and I am wearing them with my yoga pants and hoodie. And all sorts of questions go through my mind about where she got her shoes. Do they have Costco in Dubai? If so, I definitely must visit there. Or did Costco supplier also supply shoes for malls in the Middle East? Did she order them online? Does Amazon deliver to Dubai? Then I started wondering if she lived in New York and was just traveling to Dubai, or had she been traveling to New York and was now returning home to Dubai? There's something about the process of watching people in the airport and asking questions about their lives and realizing that we've all booked flights on the same plane and we are traveling in the same direction. It connects you, especially when I look down and see another woman literally in my shoes. Or I could as easily say that I am literally in her shoes. And I begin thinking about all of the reasons why I purchased these shoes a year ago for the exact reason that they are perfect for traveling. No shoelaces, easy slip on and slip off for airport security, and you can slip them off when you're on the plane ready to fall asleep in flight. 
I bought them because they could look dressy, but were also comfortable with enough support for lots of walking. And suddenly I'm in her head realizing that those are very likely the exact reasons why she bought the shoes. No matter if our home base was Utah or New York or Dubai or somewhere in the vast country of India, we were all getting on board the flight and we all wanted the same things. We all wanted to be comfortable. We all wanted to get as much sleep as possible on the flight. And probably we were all worried about the logistics of using those itty bitty airplane bathrooms. And this beautiful woman, whose name I don't know, who is still a stranger to me and yet not so strange, got me thinking about how, yes, indeed, all God's children do need traveling shoes. And I think she, my shoe twin, prepared me for the experience we were going to have next. We boarded our flight to Dubai. It was 10 p.m. New York time, and my husband and I were ready to get settled in and get as much sleep as possible for the next 13 hours. Not long into the flight, it became obvious that the child seated behind us could be autistic in some way or have some form of Tourette's. She was chanting, rocking back and forth, you know, making those continuous noises with the mouth, kind of a screeching, singing tone that she would do over and over again. And I never turned around to look. I never saw them until we all stood up 13 hours later to get off the plane. But I could hear the mother throughout the flight grabbing for every trick in her mothering toolkit to console her daughter, to help ease her fears and settle her down and try to keep her from disturbing other passengers. And the next morning, which was really nighttime in Dubai, as we all stood up waiting for our chance to get our carry-on bags from the overhead compartments, we struck up a conversation with this mother and discovered that she has two daughters with her and they're twins. And we do learn their names. And those girls have the most luscious, long, dark hair and dark chocolate eyes. And we learned that this woman lives in New Jersey now, but she grew up in a village called Sheru in India. And she's taking her daughters to go back home to visit her parents and her siblings and to be with some of their cousins. And I have to say, I'm just going to own this. We were probably the best people that could have ended up seated in front of them because we were really nice. I'm pretty patient and empathetic, especially when it comes to mothers traveling with children. And this woman was not wearing my exact same shoes, but she was wearing motherhood. And in this way, we could connect. Because as much as humans as we love to be comfortable... The shoes of a traveling mother are not comfortable to wear. And in the Dubai airport, I had one more experience with feet. After a 13-hour flight, the first thing I want to do is go to the bathroom and then brush my teeth. In a bathroom in the Dubai airport, I'm at the sink, brushing my teeth, washing the goobers out of my eye, and a woman comes in dressed in full traditional hijab. And I had to look up these names. I didn't already know the correct terminology for the traditional clothing. So she has on the long black flowing coat known as an abaya, and I'm probably pronouncing these things wrong, and the black scarf which covers the head, which is called a shayla, and then the niqab is the black facial veil which covers everything except just the slit of eyes. She comes in the bathroom. I take my hair out of its ponytail. She takes off her abaya and her niqab. We both clean the crusties out of our eyes and wipe the smeared mascara. We both brush our teeth and wipe off our armpits. And we both watch each other out of the corner of our eyes as we put on new eyeliner, mascara, and lipstick. 
Then she pulled up her robes and washed off her feet. And I thought that sounded so refreshing. That was such a good idea. So I did it too. I lift my feet up to the sink and wash them off and put on a clean pair of socks. We didn't speak any words, but we were sink mates, bathroom buddies. And she was probably every bit as curious about my life and my story as I was about hers. And my final story about shoes comes from our trip to the kingdom of Lesotho and King Mushushu, which is not the correct way to say his name. It's King Mushweshwe. But based on its spelling, any native English speaker would pronounce it Mushushu. M-O-S-H-O-E-S-H-O-E. English pronunciation, Mushushu. Sesotho pronunciation, Mushweshwe. Within the country of South Africa, there are two other completely enclaved countries. One is Swaziland, which has recently changed its name, and the second is the kingdom of Lesotho. And my son spent quite a bit of time in Lesotho, and he took us to visit. Here's what you need to know about Lesotho. Lesotho is the name of the country. Basotho is the name of the people who live in the country of Lesotho. Sesotho is the language spoken by the people who live in the country. So the equivalent for me, if I were describing myself, I am a Caucasian from the United States of America who speaks English. If you live in Lesotho, if you're a native from Lesotho, you would be a Basotho from Lesotho who speaks Sesotho. Got it? The country of Lesotho has a fascinating history. Now, this is a short and choppy summary, so please don't use this podcast as an academic source to write your master's degree on the political history of South Africa. But South Africa, as many parts of the world, is a result of colonization, British colonization, and then they also had the Dutch who became the Afrikaans speaker in South Africa. So the tribes of South Africa are being exposed to missionaries coming in from France, to Dutch colonizers and British colonizers who are also bringing in slaves and indentured servants from India, which is why there's such a large Indian population in South Africa, especially in the Durban area. So the tribal chiefs are trying to navigate all of this colonization. And King Meshweshwe, who becomes the main chief of Lesotho, is highly influenced by a chief named Malomi, who is recognized as a seer, a philosopher, and a chief who traveled across South Africa spreading messages of love, peace, tolerance, and good governance. Malami advised Meshweshwe that a wise chief should rule favoring peaceful settlement over war, that it's always better to thrash the corn than sharpen the spear. As a result, Meshweshwe became friends with colonial leaders. He was a diplomat. And while Lesotho was a British colony for a while, it gained its independence in 1966, and thus it did not experience the apartheid of the 70s and 80s that the rest of South Africa did. Now, I'm sure the story is much more complicated and political than I just made it, but the peaceful leadership and diplomatic influence of a king, whose name looks like a pair of shoes, led to the creation of the independent kingdom of Lesotho, an enclaved country surrounded entirely by the country of South Africa. This is what's so interesting to me. Driving through Lesotho felt like driving in my hometown. If you have ever traveled through the Carbon and Emory counties in Utah, especially the drive from Price towards Huntington, 
the scenery in Lesotho is exactly the same. If you picture the castle rocks, the low plateaus, the hills streaked with black indicating a lot of coal, then you can equally imagine Lesotho and the San Rafael Swell area of Utah. In fact, if I put up pictures of both, it would be hard to tell the difference. Except growing up in Castledale, I never encountered any baboons in the wild, which I did in Lesotho. One of my favorite visual pictures from Lesotho are the traditional Basotho men and boys who guard the herds of cows and sheep. No matter whether it is the heat of the summer or peak of winter, they wrap themselves in their heavy wool Basotho blankets and walk with their sticks and watch their herds all through the day and often all through the night. And you see them all over the countryside of Lesotho. Maya Angelou's book, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, is the story of her journey back to Africa in search of her home land and her home people. And her story is the perfect segue to take us from the theme of shoes to the universal topic of home and homelessness. As a black woman born in Missouri in 1928 and growing up in the segregated South, Maya Angelou never felt completely home in the United States of America. At age 33 in the 1960s, Maya travels with her son back to Ghana in Africa in search for her roots, for her real home. In the book, she writes, The ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. But after some time in Ghana, Maya Angelou discovers that as a Black American, she is not readily accepted at home in Ghana. She writes that she, with other Black Americans, realized they had not come home, but had left one familiar place of painful memory for another strange place with none. And here I want to tell you the story of a homeless man I met in Durban named Lawrence. The city of Durban is located on the East Coast. It is a large, modern tourist city reminiscent of San Diego. The sand on the beaches is different than anything I have ever felt before. It is soft, it is warm, it cushions your skin. And I've heard that the Indian Ocean is warm and wonderful for swimming, but we were there in the peak of winter, so it wasn't that warm. But considering that it was winter and that I was still able to swim, it must be warmer than the Pacific Ocean. The city of Durban is a cultural mix of three primary ethnicities. The Black South Africans, who are primarily Zulu speakers. The Indian South Africans, who were brought by colonial Britons as purchased or kidnapped slaves or indentured servants to work on the sugarcane plantations. And White South Africans, who are primarily of British descent or occasionally from Dutch descent. Durban is the largest Indian city outside the country of India. And I was very excited to try authentic Indian food. Durban is particularly known for Durban curry. But on our last day there in Durban, for a combination of reasons, we hadn't had an opportunity yet to eat authentic Indian food. So my husband and I were walking along Durban's golden mile of beach towards a highly recommended Indian restaurant when we were stopped by a mostly blind and somewhat crippled man asking for enough money to buy him one night's stay in a homeless shelter. And because as a principal, we don't give out money, we ended up taking him to lunch. 
And so we end up not eating Indian food, but sitting on the outdoor patio of a Durban hamburger joint. And this is where over a meal of hamburgers and salad topped with the most delicious avocados, I learn Lawrence's story. Lawrence grew up on a farm probably seven hours south and west inland of Durban. And I said, I grew up on a farm too. And we compared farm stories. He told me the names of all of the farm dogs he had growing up, including one named Alaska. And I said, Lawrence, do you know what Alaska is? And he didn't. And I explained that Alaska is a state in America. He loved that. They had named his dog Alaska, but never knew what Alaska was. He has a happy childhood. He's growing up on a farm with his parents, his siblings, and his grandparents. His father owns and runs a little grocery shop. Then at age 10, Lawrence and his brother and sister witness their father murdered during a robbery of his shop. Their family loses the primary breadwinner, and his mother is never really the same. Lawrence and his brother and sister grow through their teenage years and one by one leave their village and their farm to go to Durban to find work. And for years, Lawrence works in Durban, doing a series of jobs and finding enough success to keep his own apartment, attend a few classes, and, and he was so proud of this, even by his own television. And then one day walking to work, Lawrence was hit by an out-of-control driver. He was thrown up onto the hood of the car, onto the windshield, where the windshield wiper penetrated through his left eye and came out of his head just above his ear. He was in the hospital for two and a half months, and the doctors said that he should never have survived. He's released from the hospital, still with a lot of recovery to do. He's lost his apartment, his job, and his ability to work. And I'm filling in a lot of the blanks here, but it makes sense to me that Lawrence has no way to get back home seven hours to his village, and even if he were able to, it's doubtful that his aging grandparents and emotionally disabled mother would be able to care for him. No telling where his sister or brother are, where they've ended up, or if he's even able to contact them. And as the series of events goes, Lawrence ends up homeless and begging for enough rand to pay the minimal fee to stay in the local shelter. And as our meal ended and the waiter came to clean up our dishes, I realized that at some point during our engaging conversation, I had made a mistake and began drinking out of Lawrence's water glass which made my husband a ball of nervous anxiety, and he watched me like a hawk for the next several days, mostly because the big thing around South Africa is HIV and AIDS education, and there are billboards and commercials everywhere, posters in every bathroom that say condoms are cool, advertisements featuring buff sports heroes, and the caption, I am HIV educated. And since I've hardly thought about HIV or AIDS since the mid-90s, Yes, I had to Google to be reminded if it can be spread through saliva, which it can't, and I didn't have any open sores in my mouth, and I'm feeling fine. And as we parted ways, my husband and I did break our rule, and we did pass enough rand to Lawrence so that he could take his comfortably full belly and purchase a stay in the local shelter and hopefully catch a few hours of comfortable rest and a bit of a semblance of a feeling of being home. I wonder if any of us ever really feel at home, or do we all carry this sense of being foreigners, struggling to find the place where we truly belong? At the end of her book, Maya Angelou says that home is not a place that exists. Home is a place we create. Home is connection. And what I know is this. During my travels, 
thousands of miles away from my quote-unquote home, I experienced moments of home in seeing another woman's shoes, connecting with a mother traveling with her autistic child, washing feet in a Dubai airport restroom, traveling through familiar scenery in the mountain kingdom of Lesotho, learning to say saubona or salagatli, visiting with people in their homes over and over I heard the same story. We used to live this way. When we were newly married, we didn't have any heat. We slept on the floor. Then we started this business and we learned this and we discovered this and now we have this home and beds and heat. It was so hard, but we were so happy. We heard similar stories. As a church, we used to meet in the back of a butchery shop with the putrid smell of meat scraps and sitting on tires for chairs. But we grew and now we've built this church building. And it's better, but those were good times. And hearing these stories made me think about how as humans we have an innate instinct to create a home for ourselves. One of my favorite quotations from Maya Angelou's book is, You do your best until you know better, then you do better. And I think Miss Angelou sums up our human experience perfectly. We go along doing the best we can, and we're meant to progress. We're meant to learn, experience, grow. And then those experiences expand us and change us. And traveling through South Africa, I saw a lot of different homes. Everything from corrugated tin, or what my son would call aluminum, to huts with thatched roofs, to modern condos with glass walls, similar to what you would find on the beach in San Diego, California. And people's happiness and vitality and enthusiasm for life had nothing to do with the type of physical home they lived in and had everything to do with the sense of home they were creating. And if there's one thing I learned from my travels around South Africa, it is this. Every human on this planet is on a journey to find home. And on this journey, all God's children need travel and shoes. Thank you for joining me for stories and things I learned on my travels to South Africa. I'll end by saying, Salagatle, which is stay well. Salagatle, my friends. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Power Principles.